I want to tell you about Tiny Talkers group curriculum. If you're an SLP looking for more work-life balance and a fresh way to do things in your private practice, then the Tiny Talkers group curriculum might be just what you're looking for. Tiny Talkers groups are set up as a way to provide accessible speech and language support to young children in a small group setting. Our friend Megan Samuels, creator of Tiny Talkers, has done all the planning for you. When you sign up for the curriculum, you get a full 36-week program divided into summer, fall, winter, and spring semesters. The plans are easy to implement and adjust as needed to meet the needs of your clients. They include material checklists and parent handouts for each session. And the best part is, Megan designed each week so that all the materials you'll need can fit into one sensory bin. So once you get your group set up, you're done. In the years that follow, you'll pull out that bin and go. No planning, no stress, just fun. If you want to learn more about Tiny Talkers, go to tinytalkersgroupcurriculum.com to check it out. Make sure to use our code BOOKCLUB10 at checkout to get 10% off your order. We love Tiny Talkers Group Curriculum, and we know you'll love it too. You're listening to the SLP Book Club. We're your hosts, Laura Geiser and Adrian Frost. This month, we're reading Lisa Murphy on Play, The Foundation of Children's Learning by Lisa Murphy. Let's get into it. Hi, Laura. Hi, Adrian. Welcome back, everybody, to the SLP Book Club. Today, we're going to be discussing Chapter 16 of Lisa Murphy on Play. This chapter is all about the importance of play, a little bit self-explanatory, but it's exciting. So (laughs) before we get started on that, we're going to have a conversation. So as always, you can join us in the conversation on social media. Um, You can find us on Instagram, SLP underscore book club, and let us know what you think. But stick around for chapter 16. Okay. So Adrian, I'm going to start because this morning I was listening to a podcast and two women were discussing this topic. And their feelings about it were totally opposite mine. And I have really strong opinions about it. They were talking about when you're at a concert that they strongly dislike anyone who stands up. Okay. And I'm wondering, when you go to a concert, are you a stander? Do you get mad at people who stand up? I don't know if this is a height issue. Okay, interesting. I haven't given it a lot of thought. I don't think it's a big problem for me. I think if you want to stand, you should buy a floor ticket. And if you want to sit, you should buy a seat. But I guess not all concerts are like that. So I don't know. I'm always err on the side of being courteous. And I think that I would be like mostly sitting. But if it's kind of like a fun band and you want to dance, maybe stand up. See, that's my feeling is like I picture this concert where everyone's seated just being so boring. And of course, My number one choice would be to like be in the pit, I guess, where there are no seats. (laughs) (laughs) But sometimes those tickets go really fast. They're not available. And then you end up in a seat and you're like, I want to be up and dancing. And you're looking at the people behind you feeling terrible. But being like, why are we at a concert if we don't want to be standing? It's a good question. I also think it's kind of an issue of leaning your seat back on an airplane. Oh, gosh. The minute somebody does it, everyone else has to do it. (laughs) So one minute someone's standing, it's like if you want to see or you don't want to just be sitting there with like this giant person standing in front of you, then you have to stand up. Then the person behind you has to stand. Yes. Once one person stands, everyone has to stand. And, you know, right. 
I have certainly been at concerts where I am so frustrated because I feel like I have somehow an eight foot tall man in front of me. Yeah, for sure. I always feel like that person. Why my luck? Why me? Everything happens to me. This is really making me think, Laura. Thanks for bringing up this topic. Well, when they were saying that and they were just like, I hate when people stand. Mm. And I was like, what concert? Are we going to the orchestra? Like, yeah, I'll sit. Okay. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe like classical. You're right. Yeah. Interesting. But it's going to take a lot to get me out to a concert in the first place. So I'm not going to be just sitting there. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Okay, Laura, here's my question for you. All right. What is the most fun thing to do at an amusement park? And I ask you this question because I was just at Disneyland three days ago. Oh, yeah. The most fun thing to do at an amusement park is to ride very scary roller coasters that flip. Yep. Yep. (laughs) That's it. I love that feeling of, I mean, I love, it's a love-hate thing. You you dread it. Sure. But then once you're doing it and it's over, you're like, that was so much fun. That feeling of your stomach just like dropping. I might throw up. We're just not sure what's going to happen. (laughs) Okay. So this sort of leads me to my next question, which is, do you feel like you're like a thrill seeker? Would you skydive? Would you bungee jump? No, I would never do any of those things. But I think when I was young, I remember going to Six Flags Magic Mountain when I was in third grade and I had hit a growth spurt and was taller than my whole class. So all the boys in my class were so jealous that I was able to go on the Viper. That was the big roller coaster back then. I got my picture taken. Oh, wow. Uh, you know, when you get to the bottom of the big drop, oh, yeah. brought that back to show my class and everyone oh, was like, gosh. oh, I can't go on it yet. And I think from that moment, I was just like, roller coasters are cool. <laughs> oh, my God. Roller coasters are my thing. <laughs> and I still feel that way. But no, I wouldn't do anything else. Like, it's a very controlled, you know, I'm locked in, I'm strapped in. Right. Bungee jumping, skydiving, too many unknown variables, I think. Oh, for sure. And I think, I don't know if we've talked about this before, but it makes me think of water parks and those really, really big slides where you're just not strapped in at all. You're just like going down this insane drop. Love those. Oh, I don't know about all that. (laughs) So what's your favorite thing? What's the most fun thing to do at an amusement park for you? The expert who just went to Disneyland. Yeah, I mean, (laughs) I do like rides. It's kind of interesting because I have a five-year-old, you know, at Disneyland, you can have like the big kid rides and then you have like basically the boat rides yeah essentially and so since I'm normally with my daughter I have not been able to go on any of the fun Disneyland rides in years yeah I'm talking Indiana Jones (laughs) I'm talking Space Mountain let me get at it but I can't so instead I just go on the Jungle Cruise which is a boat ride which passes right (laughs) by Indiana Jones and I just kind of like look at it and like wish I was wait your daughter is too young or scared to go on Space Mountain? I don't think she would fit. I think she's too short. Oh. It's like a roller okay. coaster. Okay, yeah. The last year, she went on Pirates of the Caribbean, and it, like, scarred her to her core. Oh. <laughs> and she just told me, like, I'm never going on that ride till I'm 16. Oh. And I was like, okay. <laughs> okay, yeah. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I love that she has that age. It's like, that's when I'll be ready. <laughs> Well, that's how old Moana is. And, you know, that's a big deal for her. Oh, 
that's a real landmark. Okay, I see. Yeah, so I do like rides. I'm not like a crazy thrill seeker. I will go on them if I'm at an amusement park where they have really big roller coasters. Like, I'll, I'll go. Yeah. But um, I'm not a roller coaster girl like you, Laura. <laughs> <laughs> and of course the food oh my god i was trying to think like what's this question really hinting at are they asking if you're more of a ride person or a food person now i'm thinking more of the fair because also the oc fair is going on right now mm. and my sister was sending pictures and videos and i love to oh yeah play any of those kind of, like carnival type games i love any disgusting like funnel cake things wrapped in bacon oh my god you know what they do at the fair fried butter <laughs> and what it is like is just fried yeah. dough and then you bite into it it's just liquid butter <laughs> so gross and i would absolutely try that have you ever had a fried oreo no i haven't last year at the oc fair i ate i, I can't even remember i ate everything people kept being like you gotta go try this you gotta go try this i felt so sick afterwards because i went hog yeah. wild at the OC fair. Whoa. <laughs> okay, everyone. Well, we hope you enjoyed that. If you're going to the fair this summer, try some fried butter for us. <laughs> Stick around as we discuss chapter 16 from Lisa Murphy on play. Have you checked out Laura's speech materials yet on Teachers Pay Teachers or Boom Learning under Laura G. SLP? I am such a huge fan and I'm here to sing her praises. <laughs> Since I'm a teletherapist, I use boom cards almost exclusively during my sessions. As with all things in speech, sometimes the most unexpected materials are a hit with the kiddos. My students love Laura's What Did You Find activities that feature a fun flashlight to look for different items. And her Lidcomb handouts for parents on TPT are also amazing. And I love to use them with private clients. She also has some great game type reinforcers like the picture reveal activities and a Connect Four donut game that I've been playing on repeat with one student for months. <laughs> the best part is that I can use almost all of her materials with a range of kids who have different levels of needs. This helps you get the most bang for your buck. Her materials are well thought out, evidence-based, and fun and engaging for the kids. We can't all be creative geniuses, so we might as well support and benefit from those who are. Thanks for sharing your genius with us, Laura. Go check them out today at Laura G. SLP on Boom Learning and TPT. The SLP Book Club is not just a podcast, it's a community. Go to our Instagram at SLP underscore book club to join the discussion and connect with us after each episode. Want even more of the SLP Book Club? The resources we make to support the content of the books we read are available for free on our Patreon or at the Laura G. SLP Teachers Pay Teachers store. You can find links to them in the show notes. To learn more about the SLP Book Club, go to theslpbookclub.com. You can contact us by emailing hello at the slpbookclub.com. Follow us on Instagram at slp underscore book club or on TikTok at the SLP book club. Chapter 16 is called Make Time Each Day to Play. So in this chapter, Lisa explains that play is the cement that holds the foundation together for the rest of children's learning. So it's sort of like we've been making our way through the book, covering all these other facets, and now we're really at the part that brings it all together and forms this foundation for playful learning. 
And we have to remember that playful learning is how kids get ready for school and that learning is playing and playing is learning. Okay, so what looks like play to an adult and play to a child are really different things. So for an adult, play might be sewing a quilt or playing a softball game or you know, something that has a tangible result, building a shed. I think we can think of play for adults as hobbies, but we need to understand that the way that a child wants to play is really different and may appear kind of disconnected. Like there's no goal for them or there's no end product. I have to jump in here because yesterday I have two adult play um, examples. <laughs> First, I was at the pool and I usually do that very adult thing where I don't want to get my hair wet. I'm wearing makeup oh, yeah. and I'm just kind of maybe like waist down in the pool, not having fun. And yesterday I was so over it. I went inside, took off my makeup. I was like, I'm getting all the way in. I went out and I dove into the pool. <laughs> I did a cannonball. Yeah. I was doing flips underwater, oh my God. floating on my back. Whoa. I mean, just be in the pool and have fun. And that's no outcome, just pure fun. And it was really great. That is exciting. And then the other thing was we were watching YouTube and we stumbled upon this video by someone, I think his name was Drew Builds. He had created this in a basement. He took three TVs, huge 4K TVs, turned them portrait, like turned them on their side, put them side by side and created a window of TVs where he lays mountain scenes or outer space or it looks like the future it was so unbelievable and you watch him build the whole thing and my fiance was like I want to do this this is what I should be doing <laughs> you know it does sound right up his alley <laughs> and he brought it up all night he kept going I want window by my bed you know like <laughs> he wants to build it he thinks he has the perfect spot for it and he couldn't get over it. It sparked something in him when he saw that man building it. Okay. That's his play. He wants to do that. Yes. Anyway. No, you know, I really like that because I think if I think about adults playing, I do think about people who like have a giant train set in their basement or have these kind of like niche hobbies. Mm -hmm. But we need to be more open to that. And I hope your fiance completes his dream and I hope you give us an update because I want a picture someday yeah. <laughs> but I can really relate to what you were talking about with the pool because that's how I feel a lot it takes so much time for me to get ready and to do my hair it's such mm -hmm. a process the washing the drying the streaming and when my daughter wants to go in the pool it's like I go but I don't have the same freedom as she does because I am worried about my hair yeah but normally she just splashes me anyway and it is what it is <laughs> I know. But I'm really glad that you played, Laura. That's really fun. Yeah. I get splashed too. I have to wash my hair afterwards anyway. Yeah, might as well. Why not just really have that joyful experience? How fun. Okay. Love that. So for a child, play is a process, right? So if you're watching a child, it might look like just a lot of planning. Like who's going to be the mom? Who's going to be the baby? I love Lisa said, who's going to be the baby kitty? I was like, that's a fun game. <laughs> <laughs> can I be the baby kitty? Yeah. <laughs> um, who gets the red shovel or the blue shovel or whatever? And it might just seem like a waste of time to adults because we're just like, let's get the game started. Like enough with the setup. Let's start this tea party or whatever. But Lisa emphasizes that this kind of discussion and decision making is actually more important than the playing. And Bev Boss likes to say that most grown-ups have what's called childhood amnesia. 
So we have to remember that play is really an intellectual activity overflowing with opportunities for problem solving and creativity. And in order to really believe this, we need to allow ourselves to remember what it's like when you're a child, when we were children. And some questions that might help you remember if you need some help and if you have amnesia are, how did you play when you were little? What did you do? Who was with you? Where were you? What did you do each day after school? How old were the other children you played with? What did you do on Saturdays and Sundays? So try really thinking about this and it might help you to remember. Lisa calls this the process of getting back to the pre or basically just stopping for a second to think about what it was like before we grew up. Some more questions to consider are, what was it like to see a bubble for the first time? <laughs> Did you ever eat glue? She said paste, but like, I cannot handle how she says paste. When I read, did you eat paste? I thought of you when you were like, paste, what's that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I saw it and I was like, listen, Lisa, in this house, we call it glue. <laughs> we call them crayons and we call it glue. <laughs> Paste. What was your feeling when you made it all the way across the monkey bars for the first time? Do you remember making a mud pie or the classic, which I think everybody remembers? Do you remember putting glue on your hand and then peeling it off? Actually, when we were growing up, the best glue for that was that glue gel glue do you remember that i do recall the blue gel but i don't know if i ever used it to put it on my hand and peel it off i must have had just a i'm not sure in my desk or something because that is the one that comes to mind see i like to use the white elmers because you know it's ready when it becomes completely clear oh my gosh that is fun <laughs> yeah. i really like this quote that lisa included from george bernard shaw that says we don't stop playing because we grow old. We grow old because we stop playing. And with the rise in children's extracurriculars that are just so structured, kids are just scheduled to the teeth. <laughs> Dance, gymnastics, softball, baseball, whatever. Combined with technology and all the distractions it brings, it can just seem like play has really disappeared. So having ample time is important for meaningful play and shuttling a child from activity to activity or only giving them 20 minute chunks, you know, in preschool, it really is not enough time. And that can feel stressful for the child and doesn't really leave any room for them to sort of explore the process of playing. And children will stop playing if they don't have enough time. She talked about this really sad thing that some kids said to her. She said she was working with a group of children and they told her, Miss Lisa, we used to build big block towers, but it was always time to put them away. But, you know, I bet Lisa changed that. <laughs> I bet she did. Yeah. Playing is the cement that holds our foundation of creating, moving, singing, discussing, observing, and reading together. And that cement needs time to set so that the foundation can be solid. How can we expect a house of higher learning to be built if there's no foundation or the foundation is weak? And Lisa explains that when children are playing with blocks, there's actually a lot happening. And she gives a lot of different examples. If they're playing with you know, a sand table, if they're painting, if they're doing this, there's so much going on under the surface. So if they're playing with blocks, they're learning about balance as they stack them. They're learning about shapes as they figure out which one will fit where, about estimating when they try to guess how many more blocks they need. They might be measuring when they figure out how long a road needs to be or learning about gravity when a tower falls down. They learn about patience if they have to start over again and perseverance and persistence too. So in a way, we should all be familiar with this concept. And I was thinking about this, like as speech pathologists, 
Think about how often we have to defend what we do in therapy. I see those posters all the time. Like, speech is not just play. And then there's like the list of like, when we're playing a game, we're working on turn taking and good sportsmanship and whatever, you know? Yeah. So I feel like I can kind of relate to that with Lisa having to feel defensive about what she's doing and why. I think sometimes speech can be like that too. Yeah, definitely. But it's not mindless or meaningless self-amusement, but it seems like play is always under attack. And like, this is the part where I felt like Lisa was kind of like her manifesto (laughs) about play. (laughs) I just feel like the lady has had to defend this a lot and she's always ready to fight. And I like that. Yeah. Uh, We should remember that even though play is important and children are learning as they play, sometimes just the doing of the playing is important in itself. So... Teachers and child care providers need to be able to explain the research behind what they're doing and the learning that's happening. But at the same time, we shouldn't allow that to take the playfulness and fun out of the experience. Having to prove the importance of play is unnecessary. I mean, we have years and years of research about why it's important for children's development, yet it continues to be an issue. And she talks about how professional educators, I mean, this goes for us too, all kinds of educators, spend so much of their personal time and money constantly learning new skills, getting new degrees, reading new books, going to conferences, buying things with our own money just to make it better for the kids. So it's pretty offensive and honestly like annoying to be treated like we don't know what we're talking about, which seems to happen all the time. And she was kind of doing some deep thinking like, why does this happen if you see somebody who's a lawyer or a doctor, you're not questioning, oh, do you really know though? Like you're going like, wow, I believe you, you have a great degree, whatever. But she feels like educators aren't really taken seriously as experts because our area of expertise is children. Yeah. So she says, when you select that career, you make the decision to make it your job to know about children and schools and education and activities and developmental issues. But appearing professional and knowing what we're talking about can sometimes be interpreted as telling other people how to raise their children. And this like really made me pause and think about it for a second. Wow. She said she feels like if a contractor really knows their stuff and they come and they build you a great fence, you're going to be happy and be like, oh my God, I love my new fence. Thank you so much. But when educators know their stuff and do their job and talk to a parent about that, sometimes they're told, don't tell me how to raise my child. Yeah, I always feel like that's a really fine line. We've talked about that in the past, especially, you know, I don't have kids and I don't plan to have kids. And I always felt like I had to tell parents, like, listen, I can't do what you do. I don't have kids myself. I just felt like I had to get that out on the table with parents to be like, I'm not telling you how to raise your kids. These are just some tips on things you can do to, you know, spark speech and language or I don't know. Yeah, I get that it's sensitive, though. You know, I think it probably has a lot to do with delivery and, you know, making sure that it's not coming across as judgmental. But her dream is that eventually someday when we say, oh, what did the kids do today? Oh, they played that, you know, everybody will understand that like, yeah, they did Play-Doh and they scribbled and story time and whatever. But they also learned about math and language and science. And she says that years ago, she attended a lecture about play by Thomas Armstrong, and he expressed concern that without play, our culture will stop evolving and ultimately perish. Uh, On the PowerPoint, it said, experience plus imagination equals something new. 
And he said that something new is what continues to move a culture forward, which makes a lot of sense when you think about it. To cultivate imagination, we really need people who are playful, creative thinkers who've been provided the time to cultivate these characteristics. Good programs. She talks for a while about the characteristics of a good program and how to know when you find one. And I thought this was really helpful information, especially for parents. So she said, good programs are really built on that idea. So they give the kids time and consistency and repetition, but also they recognize that they need exposure to rich, meaningful, engaging experiences. And they should hire teachers to serve as facilitators and extenders of the play instead of like managers, you know. I just saw a post by a woman who's a big play-based school advocate. Her name is Kristen R.B. Peterson. She posted this weekend about how she separated herself from the word teacher. When you're working with little kids and you think, I should be teaching, I should be teaching, I need to be involved. But she's like, we are facilitators of play you know we're collaborators with kids coming up with things and it sparked this massive debate all these people posting you know I went to school I got my degree I earned that name of teacher so there's no way I'm divorcing myself from the word teacher like we need to hold on to teacher so people respect us so it's really tricky I do think that this is a touchy subject especially among early educators. Right, As SLPs, right. yeah, we try to get respect and not be like the speech teacher. <laughs> like, I'm a speech language pathologist. And I think it's the same for early educators. Maybe they have a master's degree or they went to school. They know their stuff. They know the research. And to get that respect, it must be tricky. Yeah, definitely. And I agree that I can't fully relate because... I mean, we know there's a lot of issues with being a speech language pathologist and our respect, but it's not the same as a lot of these people have, like you said, at least a bachelor's degree and they're still getting paid barely above minimum wage. And that is just so unfair. Yeah. And right off the bat, that's proof of like, we don't value you for your experience, you know? Yeah. Pay people more money. <laughs> <laughs> Um, okay, so in order to find a good program, you can't really depend on a name or a location or affiliation with certain philosophies like Montessori. She said that she's seen bad schools in really nice upper class areas and really good schools in poor ones, as well as family child care centers that are like in home where children are really lovingly cared for and other ones where babies are in car seats lining the hallway. I was like, what? That's depressing and sad. Like, no. stop that. Yeah. She says that she's seen excellent professional teachers who would do anything for the children and also ones who yell at them when they think nobody is watching. And both of these kinds of teachers are in every single type of childcare facility, whether it's an elementary school, preschool, a really fancy private school. You can't really avoid that. There's always going to be good teachers and bad teachers. So she says that everybody involved in a childcare program can help parents understand what quality looks like. So parents should be encouraged to ask questions or to just show up unannounced at any time to check out what's happening at the school. Parents should always be aware of any place that requires them to call before stopping by. And I think that that is so true. I think about my daughter's school and I know I could drop by any time and there's going to be kids outside and kids inside and they're going to be doing fun stuff. Parents should really feel comfortable enough to just do that if they'd like. Mm -hmm. She says there needs to be more education about what to look for in a program for parents and that we should emphasize playful learning and how it's connected to developmentally appropriate practice. 
So quality programs provide children with the opportunity to sort of develop and explore all four domains of developmentally appropriate practice. And these are cognition, language and literacy, physical and social emotional. So parents should really be able to see how the children in a program are creating and moving and singing, discussing, observing, reading and playing. And if you need to, as an educator or an owner of a facility, is you should pull out your binder and defend and explain why not doing worksheets or flashcards or expecting children to sit still and be quiet all day is super important for their development. She says you can identify a good program because when you walk in the door, it's noisy. And she said there should be teachers on the floor and not just standing around. And there's probably a bulletin board with actual art, not just paper plate art, (laughs) and tables with really engaging activities on them. And there should be children inside and outside and not a lot of screens around. And you should hear laughter and singing and see smiling faces for both the children and the adults. She says you should see loose parts, engaging equipment, readily available materials. It should smell nice (laughs) and not be too cutesy. And she says that a good program is an environment where Children can get lost in curiosity and spend their days surrounded by discovery and wonder. And parents should feel really happy in their heart. They should have calm breathing and a mind that's at ease when they walk in and do a tour of a program. Like that's how they can know. Yeah. So at the end of the chapter, she always has some questions for you to do some thinking or like deeper diving. So some important ones from this chapter are, until now, had I stopped to think about the amount of time children really need when they're playing? How did I play when I was little? Am I suffering from childhood amnesia? Am I able to articulate the importance of play in early childhood environments to those who ask? Is it maybe time that you accept Lisa's binder challenge? Look deep within, figure that out. (laughs) Do I really believe in the power of play? And what is one thing I can do on Monday to begin making more time each day to play? Yeah. So I don't know. Overall, I thought this was a great chapter. It wasn't a bunch of new information, but... I did think that it really helped to tie everything together and emphasize why we should be playing more and why we learned what we just learned throughout the whole book. Yeah, I mean, I think at the very beginning of this book, when she first brings up the seven things, you know, this is presented as the seventh thing, play. Right. But play is woven throughout all the other six things. So it's not really the seventh thing. It's the overarching thing. It's the glue. It's the cement. It's the paste. (laughs) It's the paste. That's what we've learned from this book. It is the paste. Yeah. Can you imagine if you said that paste to one of our kids? Maybe. No, because Lisa is from Southern California. She says paste. I was just thinking maybe it's regional. (laughs) No, we're from the same region. (laughs) So paste. That's what she calls it. You know what I picture? Sorry, now I'm going to go off on pace. I picture something that comes in a little tub that you would use a wooden stick to apply. Paste. I know the vibe. <laughs> okay. And maybe the brush is attached to the handle. Do you remember that? Oh, You would open yeah. it and there's just like... Oh my gosh, I just got nostalgia thinking about um, rubber cement. Do you remember the smell of rubber cement? It has the brush inside the... Oh, maybe that's what I'm thinking yeah. about. Rubber cement. <laughs> Would we call that paste? I don't know. Wow. Well, one thing I have to say I appreciate about this book is it's really brought a lot of memories to the surface for me. It's taking me back. I feel like I might be aging in reverse from this book. 
because That's free I'm, Botox, people. Check it out. <laughs> I'm feeling more joyful. I'm feeling more playful. Oh my god! You know, we age. What did? What was that quote? We don't. We don't stop playing because we get old. We get old because we stop playing. Yeah. That's the biggest lesson here. I sound really wise when I say that. I just heard it coming out of my mouth. I'm like, wow. I know. <laughs> we got to lock that one in so we can pull it out whenever we need it. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. All right, everybody. Well, we hope you really enjoyed this chapter and that it tied some things together for you. Maybe it's finally time for you to accept the binder challenge so you can defend what you're doing and why. We hope you'll join us next time as we talk about the end of this book. We're going to be discussing final thoughts, some more questions, and kind of just a conclusion and wrapping up everything we've learned. So we hope you will join us and see you next time. Bye, Laura. Bye, Adrian. At the SLP Book Club, our mission is to learn, grow, and connect with other SLPs and educators. If you love what we're doing, the best way to support the podcast is to leave a rating and review wherever you listen. This helps other SLPs find the show so our community can grow even stronger. We appreciate you so much and hope you keep listening and reading along with us. Bye.